Leaves, water, and time. Clock time, not the herb, but that may not always be so. It's tea time again on the podcast. This is T102. My guest goes over some historical healing aspects of tea, but it's not medicine, and also breaks down tea making to what you have on hand. It need not be intimidating. If you can boil water, you can make tea. And yes, you can boil water. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 117. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here with the Culinary Libertarian Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. My guest today is Sheila Duda, owner of Tilula, the tea store in Chicago. Sheila will mention some of her credentials in the tea world, which is an impressive list. Tea is a leaf and a beverage, but as I discovered during both tea episodes, tea is also a philosophy of life or at least it can be. Sheila, thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Well, I am too. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. So before we get into the topic of the day, which is tea, can you give us a little bit of your background into tea business and how long you've been in the tea business? I opened my business. Uh, it'll be 13 years this coming March. And um, I have one location in Park Ridge, Illinois, which is a suburb, um, northwest suburb of Chicago. We specialize in the finest loose leaf teas from around the world. We also carry a great number of flavored teas. Um, some tea shops can um, focus on one country or one type of tea or all estate type teas, but we really want to um, reach out to not only the connoisseur, but also um, the many people who are just now getting into tea. So I have a certification from the Specialty Tea Institute, which is the education arm of the Tea Association of the USA, and also attend a lot of um, tea-related conferences like World Tea Expo. I'm also in a and a group called the International Tea Cuppers Club, where we um, taste teas from around the world. So um, I'm all about tea. That's that's fairly impressive. I'm hearing a little something. Is that are you? Are you brewing a pot of tea right now? <laughs> I wish no. <laughs> uh, nope. I've, I've probably had I don't know a half a gallon already today, but none right now. I just mm-hmm. finished a beautiful. Um, a tumnal flush of a tea from Darjeeling, India, which is uh, a lovely, lovely tea, one of my favorites. So that I just finished. So listeners of the show may remember or may recognize the name Tilula from a few episodes ago when I spoke with one of your staff, Julie. Mm -hmm. And in doing some reading to educate myself, one of the first amazing things, and I sort of you sort of know this. Okay, tea and coffee, this is a big issue. It was like, wait a minute, <laughs> to say the statement doesn't even come close 
to the magnitude of what T is. And so without going into the whole thing, one of the things that was amazing to me, and you can expand on this, is that T really is mostly one plant. It is. It's the Camilla sinensis. It's a subtropical evergreen plant, and it will grow to be a big tree. It's like, it could be a shrub. Uh, but yeah, it's the one plant, and it's what they do to the plant at the tea estates and the gardens is what determines whether or not you're getting a white, a green, an oolong, or a black tea. And incidentally, if you drink what people refer to as herbal tea, which we would refer to that as herbal infusions, there's actually no tea plant or Camilla sinensis in an herbal tea. So the purists would say that's not a true tea, but an herbal infusion. Well, I'm I'm not opposed to distinctions for purists, and, and <laughs> in a, uh, a Twitter post, somebody made a comment about what is your favorite holiday nut, and I made the observation <laughs> that botanically there are only four; everything else doesn't count mm-hmm. officially. This is it's a splitting hairs kind of thing, but sometimes <laughs> we like being pesty on on social media, but the so into the not tea teas, and I think another word for that is a tisane. Correct. Um, that's so these are things that you know, call it just calling them teas to make it easy. Mm-hmm. There are some things that people could grow lemongrass and thyme and mint and rosemary and possibly even their own ginger and turmeric and and create their own I, I don't know what the words are, blends or, mm-hmm. or mixes or something to to have a tea, a design of their own unique creation. Oh, for sure. Not, plus, basically, anything that's brewed in hot water, people call tea. We know we don't, we always welcome those who say, oh, do you have any herbal tea? So we say, yes, we do. <laughs> so yeah, you can grow a lot of things. In fact, one of the classes that we did um, was how to plant your own herbal tea garden. And it was very similar to what you said, planting mint and thyme and lemongrass and, and then how you can take those herbs and dry them out and then create your own blend. Now, is there an advantage to making a tisane from fresh herbs versus dried herbs, other than the obvious one of convenience that dried herbs are going to last longer? Is there, does the uh, flavor of the tea change? Is there something that happens to the property of the herb as they're dried versus when they're fresh? They'll definitely have, they will have a different flavor. Some of, some, um, for some tisans, when you use dried fruit pieces like mango, pineapple, apples, what happens is the, the flavor and the aroma compounds in those fruits are very volatile. And so the flavor and the aroma will just dissipate. So in order to get, say, a mango-flavored tea, you would have to add you know, an, a mango extract. And usually they, what they do is they put that on dried apples. So then when you infuse it, that mango flavor comes out. Um, a lot of times with uh, mint, you would need to dry that out, almost similar how they let the leaf for tea wither and dry, um, just to, because sometimes during that drying or withering process, um, the plant, because it's been taken from 
you know, it's, it's been cut off from its home, so to speak. Um, it creates defensive chemicals, which creates different flavor and aroma compounds. So when you use just fresh herbs that you would just throw in a pot of water and steep versus drying them out, you'll have two different tasting teas, which is fun. It's a fun experiment to do. But I think for like lemongrass and mint and some of those, you'd want to I do want to dry them out a little bit, just if you want to have the same flavor blend after blend. I would imagine that in the world of plant defense, the flavor change is going toward the bitter side because I, because I think that's probably what happens. If if we're doing if we're going to go pick mint to dry, is it better to pick the entire stem? let the leaves dry on the stem or pick the leaves green and let them dry on a screen in the sun. You pick the leaves and then you let them dry in the sun. It's it's actually very, mint is very similar to how they would produce a tea is where you would pluck the leaf and then um, you bring it into the factory, let it wither. And during that withering time when, so if you took a tea leaf and you bent it in half, there's so much moisture in the leaf that it would snap like a sugar snap pea. But then if you try to like roll or shape the leaf into a, you know, something very visually pleasing, it would disintegrate. So what they do with tea leaves is they put them in a big trough or they put them out, spread them out on bamboo baskets, and they just let the moisture in the leaf evaporate over several hours. And then once it's real pliable, then they can roll it and then they would put some heat on it to make it shelf stable. So I'm assuming that's uh, what they would have to do with... Um, mint and other plants is at some point you're going to have to dry them and make sure that they're stable. I didn't really understand that the tea leaf was just that, well, full of water. I'm thinking you said mm-hmm. snap. I'm thinking like an aloe branch or something. Mm-hmm. Just Right. But with the, like with, but instead of having that um, aloe um, lotiony, you know, gooiness gel come out, um, with the tea plant, it's just going to be full of a lot of uh, water, a lot of moisture. So they really have to let that um, evaporate. But that's a really, it's an interesting thing. Whenever I've taken tea classes from anyone, um, especially back in the early days, some of the introductory classes, they talk about, oh, to, to produce beautiful flavors of loose leaf tea, you have to, uh, you plug the leaf, you wither it, roll it. And they would always gloss over the withering stage, which could take about 14 or, you know, 16, 18 hours, depending on the conditions, you know, it could be hot and humid where they're withering this leaf. But what happens is there's two major um, changes that occur during this withering stage. The first is a physical change. So while the moisture is evaporating from the leaf, the leaf has become a very, very soft, pliable. You can roll it and twist it and it won't break. The second thing that's happening is there are flavor and aroma compounds being created during this time against these defense chemicals since it has been, you know, pulled off the bush. So it's very, it's, it's an incredible timing, which brings in the experience of the tea masters and the, and the producers where they have to know how fast or how slowly to wither the leaf to not only get the physical change, but to get the flavor and the aroma compounds developed. So it's remarkable being at a tea estate and watching um, how closely they monitor the leaf 
from the moment it's harvested from the plant until it's basically brewed up in your cup. It's, it's, it's amazing for such a simple, lovely beverage. Um, there is a lot of art and science that goes into its manufacture. Well, the thought was occurring to me that at some point in time, somebody said, hell, let's pick this and maybe it dried <laughs> accidentally. And then they put it in some water, to bring it back. And then they said, oh, you know, this kind of tastes pretty good. And so the whole idea of tea was born. But there is, as I'm listening to you explain this, there's actually a craft. This mm. is a specialized knowledge thing where I could grow a tree of some kind and pick it and I could go through the steps to come close to this and I can probably produce something that pleases me. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could do it on you know, a commercial level, but this is, this. It, it's kind of like writing or wood carving or baking or there's, there's a specialized knowledge that is, I think, necessary to go from, okay, that's fine to, wow, how did you do that? It's very much like wine. You know, how people learn and study and taste. There's some people with wine, and I'm sure with tea, that as soon as you take a sip, you can pretty much tell you exactly where the tea or the wine was um, harvested, the grapes that were used, how long it was aged. Very similar to tea, where um, some people have amazing uh, palates, and they can say, oh, this must be a, you know, Fujian China, 6,000 feet in elevation, first harvest at 4 a.m., you know, so it's, it's incredible how sophisticated it is. Um, now, there's two different types of tea, though. I mean, we're talking about the really lovely special tea, loose leaf tea. Um, then you have your tea bag tea, which is the difference between those two has to do with yield. So when you, when you want to fill a billion tea bags a day, um, your, your goal is yield. You get the best possible quality of tea, but you need as much as possible. So that's all going to be machine harvested. But when it comes to those specialty loose leaf teas that are just um, the ones you can just savor and and really become, like they envelop all of your senses, like the, the way the leaf looks, the visual aspect of it, the aroma of the dry leaf, the aroma of the infused leaf, and then of course the taste of the liquor. Um, all of those things um, are painstakingly brought about, but it's it's amazing to see like how just different t- times of day can create a different flavor um, in tea. On some of the mountains where tea is grown, if you have a really sunny side of the mountain, that leaf will taste different from the more shady side of the mountain harvested at the same day. So it's it, to me, that's one of the most fascinating things. So we have good years in tea, like they have good years in wine. And then as um, things change every year, so you have, you know, different yields, different flavors. And it's that's the part I think that is the most fun. And then you have the tea masters who are able to take some teas and blend them. Um, so have you, you can have a consistent flavor year over year over year. And that is truly an art. We watched a blender um, or a tea taster in India, and they normally taste about 800 teas a day. And it was just amazing to watch how he could go through this line and slurp the tea and then dictate notes about that tea and know exactly how it was manufactured and if it was done 
um, the way that it was expected to be. So that was, that's why tea is, it's so fun when people start getting into it, especially when we bring in new people to the store and we can start, you know, sharing all these nuances with them. Like, wow, I thought it was just tea. And <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> there's all kinds of people say, oh, I hate tea. And I want to say, and it's which I never do, but, oh, so you've, you've tasted all like 3000 varieties, but you, you know, it's like some people don't know that, an oolong tea is a type of, it's the same type of tea. It's just been manufactured different than a black tea or a green tea. And most people in my experience who absolutely hate green tea, but they want to drink it because they keep hearing or reading that it's got so many great health benefits. The reason they normally hate it is because it was brewed improperly. And a lot of people don't know that you have to brew your green teas at a lower temperature in a shorter steep time than you would a black tea just it's just a different type of tea and so once they learn that and they can make these little tweaks into how they brew it then this whole world opens up and like these amazing flavors and aromas so uh, that to me is like it's the most fun just to see people like oh i i don't like this and then you brew another tea at a different temperature like oh this is amazing like well it was the same tea you had in the last tasting i just steeped it a little shorter so that's my favorite thing to do is to really see people light up when they taste something and they're like wow i had no idea tea could taste like this you know when you made the comparison both to uh, tea having a lot of similarities to wine and also then the difference between uh, loose leaf tea which is going for quality versus commercial tea bag tea, which wants some level of quality, but really we're talking about volume. My, my mind went immediately to two-buck chuck versus <laughs> the Far Niente Winemaker's Reserve Special Cabernet Sauvignon. Correct. They're both it's the same grape, more or less, or mm-hmm. same variety of six different grapes, but what you do to them changes the game completely. And that's the other thing that's interesting, being a guy who is, as a cook, usually the way we're going to make flavors in the pan grow and increase, and generally when flavor is concerned, more of it's a better thing, especially if you make like, like a soup or a stew, you want to caramelize your onions and your carrots and get some really deep flavors in there. So we think more time means more flavor. It is counterintuitive then to a guy like me to hear you say you're going to get more flavor from this tea by steeping it less. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's you can sort of hear the needle on the album going because it just it it really catches me. Like this makes sense, but I would never think of that immediately. And that's one of the things that I remember when we talking with Julie it was just this is this is a really amazing world. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. It's it's wonderful, and it's it is very counterintuitive for sure about the steep time. And we we when we have customers in the store, and we always um, provide complimentary samples. So you can come in the store, and we will brew up every single tea on the wall. It may take a while, but um, you can sample anything that you have an interest in. And it's really important for us to prepare the tea and explain to the customers like okay, this particular type of tea we're going to brew for three minutes at 195 degrees. Now, the temperature can you know, vary a little bit in, in, a, in a range. 
But what's really fun to do, and, and sometimes my staff loves to do this, is that we'll oversteep the tea, you know, a good four or five minutes. And then when I, sometimes when I teach a class, I will oversteep a green tea by one minute and then I'll ask everyone to taste it. My staff, they like to come up and be like, hey, we brewed you a cup of tea today. I'm like, oh, thanks. Aren't you so kind to your boss? And then it turns out that they've steeped it for a good 10 minutes. It's a hot, bitter mess. And of course, they present it right when I have a customer in front of me. So I have to pretend that um, it's my eyes aren't really watering. So it's hilarious. But yeah. It sounds like a laugh a minute. It's hysterical. But and Julie... um, came up with a really great tag that says oversteep tea is a bitter crime. So I always, clever. I know Julia is the clever one in the store for sure. It needs to be a mug. I know. Absolutely. But yeah, so the steeping of the tea is really interesting. If it's, if you are making a, let's just say a beautiful brisk tea from Sri Lanka and you, you don't brew it at like the water just right off the boil, like your kettle whistled and your water gets too cold, you actually won't bring out some of the subtle character of that particular tea with the water too cool or too short of a steep time. So like an optimal time would be like boiling water for three or four minutes. And then contrary to that, if you brew a Japanese green tea, a beautiful Japanese sencha, and you brew it with water at the boil, and you brew it for a minute, your eyes will water from the bitterness. So it's it's one of those little nuances that you you do need to learn a little bit about what type of tea you're drinking and what's the best way to brew it. So I always say, look at your tea leaf. And if it's broken and in very small parts, particles like you would see in a tea bag, that will infuse very fast because the water has a lot. of surface area to get into easily. If your leaves are larger, more whole, rolled in a little ball or twisted, it's going to take the water longer to actually um, get into that leaf and extract the flavor. So that would require a a longer steep time. So I I always say examine your leaf. So the, when you look at like among white, green, oolong, and black, like the lighter, the color, the shorter the steep, the cooler the temperature. So black teas are hotter water, longer steeps, and your green teas are cooler water and shorter steeps. And then it's fun just to play with different steep times and see what notes come out. And then there's a whole class of teas called oolongs, which are semi-oxidized teas, where a green tea would not be oxidized at all and a black tea would be fully oxidized. Oolongs are somewhere in the middle. Those are the absolute artisan teas, and they are meant to be re-steeped, you know, five, six, seven times. And that is when you really get into tea and you want to be very mindful drinking your cup, the oolongs will take you on such a journey. They're, they're my ultimate favorites. So that's a wonderful tea to get into. I want to ask you about that oolong, and then I wanted to bring up what is probably going to be the issue for everybody and that is reusing tea bags Mm -hmm. so i think it's probably fair to say if you're buying it from a from a grocery store in a box in a bag that that tea in that bag is probably pretty fine Mm -hmm. and even as an oolong would you want to reuse that bag compared to say a whole leaf tea where you're going to get a couple uses out of it 
for the tea bag tea, I just think because the, the particles are so small that um, you, it's probably a one hit wonder, especially if it's a flavored tea, but it's usually a one hit wonder. You can always try it second time, uh, but tea bag teas are meant to give you all their flavor in a minute. I mean, it's for the convenience and the quickness of it. Whereas drinking a tea bag oolong tea, it's one of those where you're, you're kind of missing the point of the oolong. And that's to um, really get all of your senses involved in this. It's not, so it's so interesting. Tea is just not coffee. It's not anything to be done fast. You know, everyone, you know, you go and you get in the line for coffee and you have it in like, you know, three seconds. Um, tea really takes uh, a whole different approach. You really have to slow down and you kind of have to wait for it. You have to bring your water to the right temperature, the right amount of steep time. And then when you get into oolongs, you have like this leaf, if you can imagine it rolled up and looks like a little pellet. And then you put that in water and you let that steep two or three minutes and it's unfurled, maybe about half of its regular you know, the leaf size on the tree. And then you just get the beautiful floral aromas from that and this really smooth lingering finish. And then you steep that again. And now the leaf unfurls even more. And you get that beautiful visual of this like dancing of the leaves in, in the teapot. It's lovely. But then when you take this, the second infusion, now it's a little toastier. The floral notes have rounded some. The finish might not be as long, but it still does linger. So all of that together, um, I, I would be sad really <laughs> if you drank a tea bag oolong. Go for a green tea or a black tea, but... Oh, the oolongs are just, I, I think of the, the tea masters who painstakingly create these oolongs over weeks. And then to, to think that they would be crushed up and put into a bag might just hurt their soul. <laughs> uh, it's like putting a uh, 75 Rothschild into your uh, sangria. Like, wait, <laughs> some things you don't do. Well, yeah. Or, you know, I remember one time drinking a Cure Royale and someone's like, well, wouldn't you put Chambord in Dom Perignon? And I just kind of had to give that cold stare. Like, I, I don't think the Dom Perignon or the Christophe people would really want you putting a raspberry liqueur in their champagne. So... <laughs> As as a coffee drinker, I can appreciate your sentiment that tea isn't coffee. Although I will tell you, I don't mind a very long steep in a good French press because mm -hmm. I want. Uh, as a coffee drinker, I I want what's coming to me out of that long steep coffee. But that's right. that's my preference. I'm I'm I don't do wimpy coffee. I'm actually a little bit. I get irritated when people present me. You're at the weak, insipid coffee. <laughs> that part aside, it's it's almost like tea is a philosophy, mm -hmm. and it requires everything at a slower rate and and much greater delayed expectations. Mm -hmm. I would agree. All right, you've brought up green tea, and I'm I'm going to make I'm going to do a, a public service announcement and say that no statements made are intended to cure, treat, heal, or diagnose any condition, and none of these statements have been evaluated by the FDA. Correct. So, with that aside, and we already know that for thousands of years, people have been drinking tea to, in some way manage their health. Correct. 
So in the, in the beginning, tea was actually drunk medicinally. They would put it in water and boil the daylights out of it and drink that really bitter liquor and felt revived. Um, yeah, it was incredible. And I'm just really grateful that someone figured out how to make it differently so it would at least taste delicious and you don't have to kind of choke it back for the health. But so tea and health is always such an interesting topic. So green, white, oolong, and black tea all come from the Camilla sinensis plant. So it's the one subtropical evergreen. When the tea is manufactured, the health properties, the chemistry of the tea leaf changes from, from that one step of withering where the chemical change is occurring in the leaf as the physical change is coming. Then with um, green or a oolong and black teas, then there's an introduction of oxidation to the leaf. And that's where they'll bruise the leaf by rolling it and then expose it to the air and the air um, starts to brown it. Just like if you bit into an apple and you set it on the counter and walked away from it and you come back in 20 minutes, the flesh of the apple is starting to brown. Same thing happens with tea leaves. During that time when that browning is occurring, there is a chemical change going on in the leaf. So I, I, I give you this information because it will help, help people understand the, varying, the various health benefits of tea. So some people say, well, green tea is the healthiest tea. And I'm like, well, I don't really know how they know that, but we'll, we'll go with that. So in the green tea, there is a catechin that hasn't converted to, and to stays how it was because the tea hasn't been oxidized. And that catechin is called EGCG, epigallate catechin gallate number three. It's a long chain polyphenol. That is supposed to be one of the uh, components of tea that, that the scientific community is studying. If you see green tea extract, basically what that is, is the EGCG from the leaf. They say that this particular catechin is responsible for you know, reducing some cancer risks. It's good for the skin, um, all kinds of things related to, you know, cancer and Alzheimer's even. I've heard so many different things. And that's because of this high concentration of EGCG. Um, by the way, if you start taking green tea supplements, you need to be smart about it because um, you can really do damage with anything that you take too much of. And it can really be harmful for your liver. So you, you, don't, you just want to drink the tea. You know, get the EGCG from the tea. And it, it can have somewhat of a bitter flavor. So there's, a, there's a, a controversy about if your tea tastes a little bitter, the bitterness is actually from the catechins. So if it's slightly astringent or bitter, then you're like, oh, I'm absorbing more of the, of the good health properties. But then how long will you do that if the tea doesn't taste good? So you're better off probably drinking a properly brewed cup of tea more frequently than having like one really nasty bitter cup when you think you're getting all these polyphenols. So cancer prevention and um, all of those good things, um, green tea from EGCG. But then when you oxidize the leaf and it converts the chemistry in the leaf and you get to an oolong, the EGCG is now has been chemically changed into something else. And so there are different property health properties associated with that. So you might have some people say weight loss control. I, if that were true, I would be emaciated at this stage. But so they say weight loss control, blood sugar control, heart health. 
So then when you fully oxidize the tea leaf, and now you have this production of theorubigans and theoflavins, these other polyphenols and catechins in the black tea, studies have shown some of those have been very good for heart health, for circulation, for keeping fat from sticking into the walls of your arteries. Um, it helps to flush that out, helps with weight control. And that's only if you quit eating the eclair, but that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> so, but, so the reason why I say like, uh, I give you this uh, little background is that in order to get the like maximum of health benefits from tea, it's probably best to drink the rainbow of tea, have some green tea, have some oolong, have some black tea, have some white tea, because all those different styles of tea are going to bring different chemistry to the party. And some might be heart health, some might be cancer prevention. So, but that's why when people get really fixated on green tea, it's like, well, yeah, that does have some good research behind it. Nothing proven, but why not either drink it if you enjoy it, if not find others that you like or drink a variety. And that really, I think is, is best for health or just for, and I think the other thing too, is that not only is it, it can be, um, somewhat anti-inflammatory and it can have antibacterial viral properties. So you, you know, get fewer colds. I don't know if I believe any of that, but um, I just think you should drink the rainbow. <laughs> There's a, I don't know when it began and I don't think it's exclusive to Americans, although we might do it better than anybody else. There's this idea that if I extract from a plant, a thing, the one thing that's said to be the medicine, then all I have to do is take the thing, take the extract and bypass the whole process of eating this thing. And, and there's, there's something missed in, in the doing. There's something missed in the ritual. And I think part of what I'm going to say we colloquially, because I don't think, I think this is everybody. I think one of the things that we miss in trying to have a hurry up life is we miss the slowing down, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, it's fast food burgers instead of going at home. And even, even if you buy your own ground beef, make the patty, grill the patty, take the time to make dinner and then take time to eat dinner. There's, I, I, I don't have proof of this. I'm sure somebody has tried to find some. The act of just doing all of this has a an, an emotional and probably psychological impact of wellness, opposed mm -hmm. in, in addition to just taking the thing. Because if it was just as easy as taking little clear vials of this thing and that thing, well, the whole by we could bypass eating entirely. But I don't want to do that. No, God, I like, no. <laughs> I like cooking. I like eating. It's, it's a sloppy burger is a fun thing to eat. I don't want it in a vial and just get the benefit and say, no, stop. No. So there's, even if it's true that you can do that with the green tea, I think what, what we would lose out from doing that exceeds what we gain. Right. And there's always, there's in every country, there's a, a some type of tea culture um, obviously a very serious culture in China and Japan. It's just, I mean, think about, um, what was that? The, um, karate kid 
<laughs> in Karate Kid 2, they have an eight-minute matcha ceremony. You know, it's funny because Julie and I talked about that Yeah. Uh, last episode. She said, to her knowledge, they did a spectacular job recreating that ceremony. Yeah, eight minutes long in a, in a major motion picture. It's incredible that they would have it that long. That's how ingrained it is in the culture. I think in um, what I've been seeing is not such um, – not like the British um, culture of, you know, three o'clock tea time, but I'm seeing more people that are just using tea as a way just to come together, slow down, have a cup of tea with your kids, your spouse, your girlfriends, your, your friends, just come around and just sit and have a cup of tea. But so the culture of tea, especially, you know, what I'm seeing here is just, it is the, the opportunity to slow down and connect. I mean, I've seen in the shop where, um, a father and a young daughter would come in after school and just sit and visit and have a cup of tea. It's one of those things where it's almost uh, just kind of inappropriate. Should you be having a cup of tea and you have your cell phone on the table? Like you wouldn't want to interrupt that tea time um, with a, that type of distraction. So it's more about just this coming together, being very present with the person that you're having tea with. Uh, which is so nice to see. And it's even since we, you know, we can't really have people in our shop right now um, due to the restrictions here in Illinois. It's just wonderful to see like people coming in and buying packages of tea because they are making it at home now with their families. So there, so it is like a nice way to come together. Cause again, you have to like bring your water to a proper temperature, measure out your leaf steep it for a particular period of time and then, you know, serve it in something nice and then just sit and visit with someone. So I really love seeing that whole culture around tea um, keep growing here in the States. It's really exciting. Yeah, that's a sign of hopefulness, I think. It's lovely. And I think, you know, and you add that to what's going on uh, with the pandemic and you see that people are just they're home now. They're with, you know, their families. They really can't go out as much as they, you know, used to in the short term here. But it is for me, I'm, I'm hoping it's one of those traditions that continues after people kind of resume uh, whatever normal life will look like in the future. But it's wonderful to see that, you know, and, it, and it's really interesting too. around the world. Um, tea is the most the second most beverage consumed after water. And there is some somewhat of a thing like in that I've heard it's like a it's like a lady thing here. I don't know if it's because of afternoon tea, but it's drunk by just as many males as it is female. So it's not like a girly thing to to do, although more more women go to afternoon tea than men. But just sitting and having a cup of tea really has no gender, um, which is nice to see because we get like you know teenage boys and. Although I have to say, we do have one tea that's very popular among the teenage males, and that's called Madagascar Fine Bourbon. <laughs> it took a while for, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go to the tea shop and get that tea with the bourbon. And it was kind of funny when I had to, like, say, well, you know, bourbon's a place where they make vanilla. <laughs> and it sort of took the wind out of their sails. <laughs> but it became a very good seller among high school males. <laughs> Madagascar Fine Bourbon. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, okay, so you've we've sort of danced right up to this, and I think this is the perfect time to start talking about, uh, because of the time of the year it is, 
giving tea and tea stuff as a gift, especially for people who have expressed an interest but don't really know what to do with it yet. Those are the fun ones. I love that. Um, so I would recommend any type of um, kind of a get-to-know tea um, kit. So they're obviously in many, many tea companies have different sampler sets where you can try a variety of green teas or they might have, um, like we sell a breakfast blend. So you can, what's the difference between an Irish and Scottish and an English breakfast blend? Um, we also have a, a lovely um, kit for people just getting into tea and it's called our tea essentials. And that has a tea measuring spoon. It has um, a timer, a little digital tea timer. It has an infuser basket because we, we don't recommend those those tea balls or tea eggs are too small. They don't allow enough room for the leaf to expand. So with these really nice mesh infuser baskets, and then there's a variety of a white, a green, an oolong, and a black tea um, to start the journey along with a brewing guide and um, to help you get, you know, get on your way with that. So I would say for gifts for the holidays, most definitely would be a, um, just a variety, a sampler variety. And then, but then some, you know, we have some varieties that could be, are you just into oolongs? Here's an, an oolong sampler or a black tea or a green tea sampler. So I think that's the best way to get started. Giving it as a gift would be just to pick a sampler. It's really hard though, like, cause you know, trying to pick like a tea for someone that you don't know, like Earl Grey is a tough one. People are familiar with the name of Earl Grey, but from my experience, there is a love hate relationship with Earl Grey. You love it or you hate it, and there's no one in the middle. So that's why. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. No, it's like you love it or hate it, and that's it. So if you don't know someone um, really like loves Earl Grey, so then you could get them a whole Earl Grey sampler, Earl Grey with lavender, Earl Grey with orange or vanilla. But if you don't know they like that, and you give the, you know a big bag of Earl Grey, that sad bag of tea is going to sit in a shelf and or not. So I would say you kind of want to go a little bit um, easy on certain, like one major type of tea. That's why I think the sampler is better. Just kind of get a little taste and find out which ones you like. And then they can come back and buy like a package of their favorite. Sure. Is I have, my mother had a teapot and it might, if it holds a quart, I think that's generous. Are there teapot sizes? Does anybody even use a teapot anymore? I mean, that's. I think the ancillary things that go with tea could be almost endless and probably get very expensive. But there's, you know, if you're learning about tea, you're not because I don't even know if you could spend four hundred dollars on a teapot. But no, I don't think that's necessary. In fact, I did a class. Um, I did actually a virtual class not long ago. It's like how to brew tea with what you have at home. So if you don't have Perfect. a teapot, but you have like a Pyrex. So what you need is a Pyrex and a strainer and a cup. So you could, you need something that can handle the hot water. So you put your, throw your tea leaves straight into a Pyrex and then pour it, fill it with your water, let it steep. Use a, like a little colander, a little strainer and strain it into your cup. So that's the easiest thing just to do, you know, in something that you have already at home. The most important thing about infusing tea is the infuser. 
So some teapots come with the infusers in them, and that's very easy and convenient. Mugs will come with um, a, an infuser made for that. Really great option. The baskets are a great option. So it's more like what what is the lifestyle? Then as people go from the introduction to loose leaf tea to more of a real serious tea drinker, that's when you start getting into the beautiful Chinese Yixing teapots or the Japanese Tatsuban cast iron teapots, all of those that have a function for a very specific type of tea. That's, that's just fun to do. But I think when you're first starting out, you, the most important thing is your tea leaves are going to expand. They're not like tea bag teas. They're going to kind of just stay in that little bag. These are going to expand 10 times what they started out looking at looking like. So the most important thing is just get an infuser that's large enough to let the leaf expand. And usually those little baskets will do fine. Uh, we even sell like really big fat tea, self-filling, you make your own tea bags. Those work well too. So, and when it comes to loose leaf tea and infusers, um, size does matter. You know, I was, as, as you were talking about making tea with what you have, it sort of occurs to me that um, and, and this, I see this in, in baking when someone either has baked not at all and gets really intimidated by, by making a simple biscuit or a simple muffin, or someone has some baking skills but won't dare touch Danish or puff pastry, there's, there's a fear, and that seems like the right word, with or intimidation of a thing. Mm-hmm. And and so everyone's seen the karate kid eight minutes of tea <laughs> ceremony, and it they they think that they that there's tea police, and if they don't do it right, I don't know what they think is going to happen. But somehow they have violated the tea gods' dictums and wishes, and now they're drinking terrible tea. And is so many ways to personally feel like <laughs> they've not done something right. And working with bakers, I know that this happens. I know people feel they take success or lack of it very personally. So making this, make tea at home with what you've got thing is a fabulous idea. Oh, yeah. It makes it, because we want it to be approachable. Like, I know that there are some, um, there are some tea places that are very much like your super high-end, you know, wine stores. And you, and I would feel intimidated walking into one and I would feel even worse letting the sommelier know, like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I just need to get this wine to go with this meal and I want it to be great. So I, I've had that experience where I felt really uncomfortable and really intimidated. So I've, I've always remembered that, especially when I opened my store and it's like, hey, I was new at tea once too. And I didn't like, I always am mindful of, I don't want anyone to feel like they can't do it. They, you know, they're afraid to ask questions. Some of the names of the teas have, you know, names we don't usually hear in America. Um, some of them are translated from the Mandarin or the Cantonese. So some, and they're hard to pronounce. So my goal is to be like, you know, it's leaf, water, and time, and you can do it. And so when someone's trying something new in the store, we really try to show them how we brew everything in front of them. And we just try to show them how easy it is. Just throw the leaves into the Pyrex, cover it up with some water, let it, you know, hey, Siri, set timer for three minutes and you're good to go. And it's mostly just to, to you know, build confidence, say that it's just leaf time and water. You'll be fine. Just try it. And if it's too bitter, 
cut back your, your steep time a little bit. Not strong enough, add some more tea to it. That's the fun of it. So it's, it's really different because a lot of people are really good at making coffee. Like you could just, you know how many scoops to put in your coffee maker and it pretty much will taste um, the same each time. That's why I do love the whole coffee movement for like the slow coffee. I mean, it's amazing. There's a whole world of coffee out there that's as, as obsessive as the world of tea with, you know, pour over coffees and French press coffees and the, where the beans are coming, how many Quakers are in your batch of beans, all that. So I love that. Um, but that, you know, if you go and get all this fancy coffee stuff, you might be intimidated too. It's like, no, no, no. Just remember, leaf water time. You can't go wrong. And if it doesn't taste right, well, you call us up and we'll help you out and, or try again. Let's talk just a, a few moments about the chemistry of the bitter. And so I, I happen to know, and you probably do too, that alkaline is a, or bitter is a function of high alkalinity. So that's somewhere between 7.1 and 14, <laughs> not 14, <laughs> uh, the pH scale, because that's a different problem. So one of the ways in, with, with food, one of the things we can do, and people usually say, well, add sugar to bitter tea. Well, okay, fine. You'll have sweet bitter tea. <laughs> uh, lemon as an acceptable last for tea, probably orange, maybe even lime, depending on what the tea is, will neutralize the bitter in the tea. And so at least now something that is palatable until mm -hmm. you fix your problem tomorrow. Do, is there something else that you think would be a good use of an acid to temper the bitterness in a tea? Do you know what works the best um, in, in a lot of teas is a dollop of honey. It's amazing. It's like a miracle dollop. So which doesn't even like make sense when you think about like how you we want something citric or it's just the honey just softens that bitterness. And I always tell you, if you oversteep your green tea by like four minutes, you're doomed. <laughs> There's nothing's going to fix that. But if it, if you like forget about it for a, like a, a minute or two, you know, especially a black tea, just a tiny dollop of honey seems to really smooth out that bitterness and makes it a little bit more palatable. Hmm. Okay. Well, that yes, that does not from a what the ingredients are chemically right. doesn't make any sense. Right. But I'm not going to argue with you about the application. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but um, it's tricky. Now, here's another interesting thing about bitterness in tea. If you use um, spring water, it will extract more of the polyphenols in the leaf than tap water. And it makes your tea taste a little bit bitter. But then you're getting, you're extracting more polyphenols. So it's very interesting. Um, St. Louis University did a study on it a couple of years ago on the different types of water and what the extraction rate of the polyphenols were. But it does, you're sacrificing um, a little taste for that bitterness. So I think lemon's always a good, a good especially in a green tea, I think lemon is a good option. Um, also, when you put anything with citrus in green, like your in your green tea, like in like a spinach salad, your body it binds with some of the nutrients in the leaf, and your body absorbs more. But yeah, I think to get the bitterness out, unfortunately, sometimes with tea, you, if you really forget your steep time, you're going to regret that. <laughs> now. 
With black tea, though, you can always add milk. Okay. And if you've ever been to Ireland, oh my gosh, they say that they want they make their tea strong enough so a mouse can run over the top of it. And I, you know, and being like, you know, the the pure leaf drinker, I'm in Ireland, and like, oh, would you like some milk for your tea? And like, no, no, that's fine. And then I tasted it, and I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> I will take the milk now. Yeah, so that will help too. That'll help calm that down. That's good. Well, and actually, dairy is a little on the acid side, so. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, I had no idea. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, I want to move a little bit into a short answer part of my show, and okay. this is just some fun, easy questions. Of the five flavors, bitter, sweet, sour, salty, or umami, mm-hmm. which one do you prefer the most? Oh, my gosh. Well, depends. Probably sweet, then umami. What's your favorite food? I wasn't prepared for these. It was supposed to be. <laughs> what is my favorite food? I'm thinking. I like a really rare steak. This one's easy. What's your least favorite food? Oh, anything nutty. What sound do you love? What sound? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the sound of ocean waves. What sound do you hate? The ringing tinnitus in my ear. What's your favorite food indulgence? Any cookie. <laughs> you're, you're in luck. It's the right time of year. <laughs> For people interested in learning more about tea by reading, and certainly maybe even as gift-giving, are there a couple of books you think are especially well-suited for tea and gifts? Yes. Okay. So one of my favorite books right now, all right, now I'm putting on the spot. I'm looking in my library as we speak. Um, I just want to make sure I get the right title. So there's the new Tea Companion, which is by... Bruce Richardson and um, Jane Pettigrew. It's a one. They are like two like wonderful tea authors. And then my other favorite is written by a wonderful tea blogger named Tony Gebley, and his book is called Tea: A User's Guide. And definitely, if you're getting into tea, that is a wonderful, um, great description, interesting history. Um, that was a, it's a wonderful, wonderful kind of primer on tea. It's one of my favorites. Cool. Well, I will put links to both of those on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 117. And I want to thank you for your time this afternoon, evening. I appreciate it. We could probably talk a long, long time. <laughs> 
Well, thanks so much for having me. It's really, um, it's been a pleasure and I was very um, honored to be invited on your podcast. And you're my well, first podcast I've ever done. Well, I could never tell because you did a great job. <laughs> Thank you. Well, all right. So that's going to do it. Thank you again for your time and have a great uh, rest of the day and have a good weekend. Same to you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. The link to Tilula the shop will be on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 117. I'll also have the two books listed there that Sheila mentioned. We have in my family a Christmas tradition of giving at least something wanted, something needed, something to wear, something to read. Fulfill at least one of those gift ideas with my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort. Find the link and photos submitted from readers at culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort. Please share this episode on your social media feeds. Like it also on social media and rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Have a good week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.